So we're reading this morning from um, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you have one of the church Bibles, you'll find it on page 1778. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating at an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Thanks, David. Morning, everyone. If you've got one of the service leaflets as you've walked in, you'll see there's an outline on the inside of that. That'll help you to, to follow on a little bit better with where I'm going. And if you keep your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that will help as well. In, in our country, we're very fortunate with the rights that we have, aren't we, compared with other parts of the world. And we're also very much in tune with what our rights are. So if someone is doing the same job as me, but they're getting paid more, or if someone drives through a roundabout when it's my right of way, or when a, a younger sibling is, is getting things from my parents that I'm not getting, then I know that that's not fair. And if you've ever found yourself saying, that's not fair, it proves, doesn't it, that our rights are important to us. Subconsciously, we're, we're always asking ourselves, what am I entitled to in this situation? Uh, whether that's under my parents, whether that's under the law, uh, if you're a Christian here, whether that's under God, what am I entitled to? Our rights are important to us. And so the thought of giving them up doesn't thrill us at all. But chapters 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians show us that sometimes our rights need to be given up for the sake of the gospel so that people can stand firm in their faith, as we, we just read here in chapter 8, or so that people can come to faith, as we'll see next week in chapter 9. And we've decided to extend this 1 Corinthians series by, by one more week, just because chapters 8 and 9 are so, so connected, we figured it made sense to, to end at chapter 9 rather than chapter 8. 
Uh, so the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, we've got Paul who's writing this letter, and he's taking the church in Corinth to task about uh, things that he's heard about that they're doing. Uh, so an over-reliance on human wisdom, sexual immorality, divisions, lawsuits, you name it, it's going on in that church. And in chapter 7, he moves on from things that he's heard about uh, to things that they've asked him about, so questions that he's answering. Uh, the first one we saw was last week in chapter 7 about uh, sex within marriage. And now chapters, chapters 8 to 10, he's addressing an issue that they've clearly asked about the topic of idolatry, and in particular, eating food that's been sacrificed to idols. Now, it's probably helpful at this point to get a bit of an overall picture of the context that Paul is writing into. It's quite different to ours today. The worship of idols and, and various gods was really central to the culture in Corinth at that time. So all of the, the social gatherings and the business meetings and everything took place in the pagan temples. Uh, so, so much so that it was hard to be part of that culture in Corinth without being involved in idol worship or at least exposed to it to some degree. Probably a little bit like materialism for us, even if you can restrain yourself enough not to get sucked into it, you're still very much exposed to it. It's hard to, to completely avoid it. And what would happen in Corinth was that animals would be sacrificed to the idols and then the meat would be eaten. So sometimes it would be cooked up right there, right then and there in the temples, and it would be served up in the temple dining rooms, which kind of functioned a bit like restaurants. Sometimes the meat would just be sold in the meat markets, so effectively like a butcher today. And in both cases, the question was, can a Christian rightfully eat this meat? That was the question. Can a Christian eat meat that's been used in idol sacrifices? And it seems as though the Corinthian Christians were arguing that, yes, they had the right to eat this meat. What does Paul say? Well, looking at verse 4, he says, An idol is nothing, nothing at all. There is no God but one. There aren't multiple gods. There's one God. One God the Father, one Lord Jesus Christ. So the gods that this food is being sacrificed to aren't real. Paul and the Corinthians both, both agree on this. There's one God, the other gods aren't real. And therefore, as long as a Christian knows that there is only one God and that these idols have zero significance, there's no biblical issue with them eating the meat that's been sacrificed to these idols. It's really no different to me heading down to Aldi and getting a 10-pack of chicken skewers and cooking them up at home. Uh, if, you, if you cast your eye over to chapter 10, you'll see that Paul will talk to them about avoiding idol sacrifices, which might, might seem like a bit of a contradiction to what's going on here in chapter 8. Chapter 10 is talking more about the actual participation in the worship side of it, whereas chapter 8 here is, is just talking about eating the leftover food, uh, which isn't an issue. So they have the right to do it. But they should consider whether they have the responsibility not to. Because knowledge is a dangerous thing without love. This is the point that, that Paul makes here, even before he begins to address the issue that's at hand. If we have a look at verse 1, he says, We all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. 
Paul uses this puffed up language a few times in 1 Corinthians, and he uses it to show how people can have an unhelpful pride in their own knowledge. The Corinthian Christians have knowledge. They know that there's one God, there's one Lord, the other gods aren't real, and therefore the sacrifices that are made to them are meaningless. This is good knowledge for them to have. But the danger is that this knowledge can puff them up with pride, and that if it isn't controlled by love, it can be used in a way that's unhelpful for other people. You see, the most important knowledge isn't what I know about God. It's that God knows me in a relational sense. Who does God know relationally in this way? Well, verse 3, the person who loves him. And the person who loves God will have loving concern for other believers, not just looking out for themselves. There were people in this church who knew that idols weren't real, and so they could eat this meat with a clear conscience, no worries in the world. But there were also people, verse 7, who didn't have this knowledge, people with weak consciences, most likely people who had become Christians recently and they'd they'd converted out of a background of idolatry. And so for them, eating this meat still had close associations with this life of idolatry. And so it was impossible for them to go to the temple dining rooms or even just to, to buy the meat and to eat it at home without being drawn back into that old way of living. So when they converted to Christianity, they turned away from idolatry, but they hadn't yet learnt to disassociate the food from the worship in their own minds. And so to eat that meat for them was to worship that idol. Can you see the issue that's going on here? And so the overall principle is pretty clear. My rights are not worth allowing someone to stumble in their faith. My rights are not worth allowing someone else to stumble in their faith. Verse 9 sums it up really, doesn't it? Be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Sure, Paul says, you have the right to eat this meat. But what happens when a new Christian, someone who's still caught up in the mindset of idol worship, what happens when they see you in that temple dining room, when they see you buying that meat? They'll think it's okay for them to do as well. But in their minds, they they won't yet have a clear conscience, that, that clear conscience that you have because of your knowledge. They'll still be thinking of this as being a worship act, and they'll be associating the eating with the other gods, and their conscience will then be wounded by your use of your freedom. And, worst case scenario, by being exposed back to this way of living before they're ready, they may return in their hearts to this way of life. They might reject the Christian faith and be destroyed spiritually. All just so you could exercise your right to eat a lamb chop. And of course, who are we ultimately sinning against and wounding when we sin against other brothers and sisters and when we wound their conscience in this way? We're ultimately sinning against Jesus, aren't we? Jesus who died so that me and so that this person that I'm wounding can have life. Jesus gave up more rights than any of us will ever have to. 
So even though he's the son of God, Jesus came down to earth. He lived as a man. He laid down his life for us, died on a cross, so that anyone who trusts in Jesus can have life in his name. This is the ultimate giving up of rights out of love for us. So how could we then put someone's spiritual life and salvation in danger just to exercise a small freedom when Jesus gave up so much of his rights to buy that person's life? It just doesn't make sense, does it? We can be so wrong in how we exercise our rights. And so Paul says in verse 13, If what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. My rights are not worth allowing someone else to stumble in their faith. That's the big picture here. But what does it look like in the here and now, in a very different world to first century Corinth? How do we apply it today? Well, the general principle is still the same. Anything we say or we do, we have to ask ourselves, not only is this okay for me to do, that is, is it going to lead me into temptation or is it, does it go against what the Bible says? Not just is it okay for me to do, but is this going to be okay for other people as well? Could me saying this or doing this cause a brother or a sister to be led into sin, either to do something that they think is wrong or to do something that is wrong? Now let's just be clear on what Paul isn't saying here. What he isn't saying is that we should be governed by other people's opinions on what is right and wrong when it comes to matters where the Bible isn't explicit. So that we should fit in with their views on what we might call non-core issues. See, there's, there's a big difference between someone saying, it's wrong for a Christian to eat meat, you shouldn't do it, versus, I don't feel quite right about eating meat. I don't, I don't feel like I'm being disobedient, I don't feel like I'm being obedient to God when I eat meat. Can you see the difference between, between those two? So one of them is a person's opinion that they're wanting other people to follow. It's coming out of a place of strength. The other one is someone's personal concern. It's coming out of their own conscience. It's coming out of a place of weakness. So I hope that, that difference between those two makes sense. Paul wants us to give up our freedoms to save weak people, to care for them and to stop them uh, from sinning against their own conscience, not to keep the strong people happy. Paul is actually writing to the strong Christians, that is the ones who know a lot, and he's urging them to exercise that knowledge lovingly for the benefits of the weaker Christians. And he never gives any sense that the strong Christians are any better than the weak Christians, does he? Have a look at verse 8. We see that the strong, knowledgeable people aren't any better for eating the meat, and the weaker, less knowledgeable people are no worse off for not eating it. So this passage is written so that the mature, knowledgeable Christians conduct themselves in a way that's helpful for the newer, less knowledgeable, less mature believers. So, who are the weak people that we need to be mindful of then? Well, the first people that come to mind are newer Christians, people who have only made a commitment to Jesus or they've really only grasped what it means to follow Jesus recently. 
and who are in the very early stages of working out what it means to put off the old and put on the new way of life. That's a process that often involves cutting ties completely with old ways of living, even if, even if those old ways of living aren't entirely bad. For instance, I've got a friend who has become a Christian quite recently, and he made the decision to give up alcohol, just decided he was going to give it up. Now, drinking alcohol isn't bad in and of itself, but it, it can get taken to a sinful extreme quite easily. And so actually, to avoid drinking it is better than to go to this extreme. It could be that there's someone who is in the habit of drinking heavily and they become a Christian and they, they repent and they turn away from this lifestyle of drunkenness. But it takes them a while to distinguish between uh, the difference between sinful drinking and okay drinking. And so to encourage them to drink or even just to encourage them to, to go along to a party or, or some sort of environment where they'll be tempted to drink is actually really unloving for where they're at. Uh, it could be that someone becomes a Christian and it heightens their conscience to their own materialistic living, so what they, what they spend their money on, or perhaps what they watch on TV, the sort of things they listen to. It could be anything. In fact, actually, you'd hope that that would happen when someone becomes a Christian because that is the Holy Spirit working in someone and, and heightening their conscience uh, to the way that they're living. And as this person grows and, and matures in their faith, we can come more and more to have those conversations with them and to, to help them to see uh, what they can and can't do as they grasp the freedom that they have in Jesus. But we mustn't force it on them before their conscience is ready, because that would be unloving. Now, it's not just new Christians that we need to be mindful of, but really anyone who is susceptible to particular sins. I'm trying to think of someone here, a good example of someone to use who would be susceptible to particular sins. I think the best... I've got everyone's attention now. I think the best person to... Don't put your hand up. Best person to use would be... Actually, all of us, really. Isn't it? We're all susceptible to particular sins. And, and having an awareness of what we struggle with helps us to flee from that sin and that temptation. And likewise, having an awareness of what other people struggle with helps us to to stop ourselves from leading them into temptation as well. Now, sometimes that would be really obvious. Other times, we just have to be sensible with the decisions that we make around people. I've mentioned alcohol already. There are people I know who I just wouldn't drink alcohol around. I don't have... I don't think drinking alcohol is wrong, but there are people who I know that drinking alcohol around them would, would place an unnecessary temptation in their life, and it just wouldn't be helpful for them to see people drinking alcohol because they wouldn't be able to stop themselves from taking it to a sinful extreme. The clothing we wear as well is a freedom that we have, but it can lead people, particularly of the opposite sex, into temptation, depending on what we wear. So there may be times where we actually have to give up our rights with what we wear to be able to lovingly care for other people. TV shows, movies, media, that sort of thing can all have varying levels of uh, sex, swear language, um, supernatural themes, violence, that sort of thing. And to some extent, there's, there's freedom, isn't there, in, in how, we, 
how we, how we do that, what we watch, because everyone has a, a different threshold with what they can handle before uh, they find themselves affected in their conscience or before they are led uh, to sin uh, or to be led into temptation in that way. And so your level may be different to someone else's. You may be able to handle different levels of that to someone else's. And so we need to be careful what we allow or, or what we persuade other people to watch or to listen to. Just as an example, I know Christians who watch Game of Thrones, the, the TV show. They, they watch that, they'll post about it on Facebook, they'll talk about it with other people. I just think, particularly um, coming from a man's perspective, even if you can watch a show like that without sinning sexually in your mind, it's unloving to affirm something that is so likely to lead other people into sin in that way. Harry Potter. You all knew that was coming. It's a bit of an interesting one, isn't it? There are Christians who genuinely, sincerely, think that it's unbiblical to, to read Harry Potter books or to, to uh, uh, watch the Harry Potter movies. Um, it's not my personal view. I think the, the magic that you see in Harry Potter is just so different to the, the magic in real life that it's a completely different ballgame. But not everyone thinks that. Not everyone thinks that. And it's a case of working out, is this an issue of conscience or just someone's opinion that I'm working with here? Could me reading Harry Potter or watching it or, or letting my kids read it, could that cause someone who genuinely believes that that's being disobedient to God to sin against their own conscience? That's the issue here. It's not just about whether I think it's right for me. It's actually thinking about other people and that decision. It becomes a wisdom decision as another example, Alicia does yoga fairly regularly. Now, yoga is a Hindu practice originally. It's got spiritual elements to it, which if you're taking the class as a discerning Christian, you're, you're unlikely to be particularly influenced by that. But I know that Alicia wouldn't take a young Christian or a new Christian along with her to a yoga class, and definitely not if they had some sort of new age or spiritual or other religious background because it just wouldn't be a helpful environment to expose them to. Some people are just more susceptible to particular sins. So maybe it's anger, slander, gossip. It, it could be anything. And we should be careful about exposing people to situations where they'll be tempted to sin in these ways. So I can picture situations where I think I could conduct myself in a re at a reasonable level in those situations. But a friend who's perhaps more prone to gossiping would really struggle to, to come into that situation and not be tempted to fall into that sin. And so the loving thing is not to put that person in that situation. Sometimes it won't be clear-cut either. Alicia and I come from families who have completely different backgrounds as far as holidaying goes. So Alicia's family would go on overseas holidays all the time. My first overseas holiday was three years ago on a honeymoon. It just wasn't something that I ever experienced before. And so naturally with that, we, we come into something like holidays with a completely different perspective on things. And with apologies to the 30 people in this room who have been to Europe this year, we'd look at a, a ten or $15,000 trip to Europe and Alicia would look at that and go, great idea. That is a great stewardship of money. That's great self-care. Let's do it. Whereas I would look at it and go, how many compassion kids could I sponsor 
for that. That's, that's a terrible stewardship of money. How could, how could we do that? So you could look at an issue like that and you could say, Mark is the weaker brother in that marriage. Or you could look at it and go, Mark is the better financial steward in that marriage. I suspect there's no black and white answer to that question. People have been to Europe this year probably think there is, but we can <laughs> chat about that later. But it does mean that we have to be understanding in how we, how we look at this issue together. We have, to, we have to be able to understand and engage with each other's viewpoint. We have to know why each other thinks the other thing. And we, and we have to be able to, to make a decision that isn't going to affect anyone's conscience and be prepared to have that conversation. See, we live not just for ourselves, not just for our own salvation. We live for the glory of God and for the, the building up of the body of Christ as we await the glory that's to come. Jesus gave up his rights so that we could be saved. And we honor him with our rights when we willingly and joyfully give them up for the sake of others. So if eating meat is gonna cause a brother or sister to sin, then bring on the lentil burgers. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for the rights and the freedoms that you give to us. Thank you for all the, the wonderful things in the world that you give to us to enjoy. And we pray that you'd help us to have a right perspective on this, that you would help us to accept these things as good gifts from you, that you'd help us not to overreach in our freedom and not to take it as a license to sin or anything like that, but also help us to be mindful of people for whom there are conscience issues that come up with these sorts of things, or people who are easily led into particular types of sin. We ask that you'd give us a heart for others, a heart for you, and a mindset to be able to look at the circumstances we're in, look at the choices we have, and see them not just out of what's good for us or what's right for us, but what's going to be helpful for other people and what's going to be best for building up your church and bringing glory and honour to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.